Uh, the letters to the seven churches are found in Revelations chapter 2 and chapter 3. And we often deal with them sort of on their own, um, out of the context in which they fall. And the context is actually Revelation chapter 1. It's part of a, a, a whole vision of, uh, of, of that John received on a particular Lord's Day as he was on the island of Patmos. And he says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus Christ, was on an island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. He was there because he was being persecuted. He was there probably in exile because he believed in Jesus. And he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That's just another way of saying that he was praying and he was communing with God on the Lord's Day, which today is a Lord's Day. And he says, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it, here it is, to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, to Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And so the revelation to these churches begins there. And in fact, the very next thing that happens is then there's this amazing picture of the risen Christ. As John describes his hair and his eyes and his feet and, and his voice and his, what he has in his hands. And it's this incredible vision of Christ, which is meant for all of the churches to grasp and figure out. And it's my understanding that the, the, the letter to these uh, for, for each of these churches, and not just the, the, the first three chapters, but the whole of the book of Revelation is not written for us, and, and maybe for those few saints that are going to live at the very end of the last days, which many people believe that after chapter 4, Revelation is really, in, in some senses, irrelevant for the church. It's my understanding that the book of Revelation is a manual of discipleship or an encouragement to Christians to continue to walk with Christ in the midst of difficult times in the whole church age. And so it's, 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 it's incredibly relevant to us today. Every single chapter and verse is relevant to us today as followers of Jesus. And if you like reading books, there's, there's one book which I think more than any from a pastoral perspective helps understand the book of Revelation from that point of view. And it's by a pastor. He's the pastor of First Baptist Church in Vancouver, BC. And it's just called Discipleship on the Edge. And it's a, a beautiful um, understanding, unpacking of the book of Revelation as it applies to every one of us today. Why seven? He says, to the seven churches. You think about that for a minute. In, in Parksville, there's probably 14 churches. In Oceanside, there's probably 20 churches. In the world, there are tens of thousands of churches. Why seven churches? If, if, if John's book is only addressed to these seven churches, doesn't it mean that's as irrelevant to the rest of us? Because we're not in Ephesus, we're not in Sardis, we're not in Smyrna, we're not in Pergamon, we're not in Laodicea. So really, do we just shut our minds off then at this point and say, oh, I guess that's not for me, I don't need to hear that, he's not talking to me, this is what I thought about the Bible, it's this book that has no relevance to my life. I think seven is a critical number because seven is the number of wholeness or completeness. It's the number of perfection. And as I understand the symbolism in the book of Revelation and what he's talking about is that what he's addressing when he addresses the seven churches is he's addressing the church universal. Those seven churches are meant to represent every single church that will ever exist and have ever, has ever existed in the last days. And what he writes to these seven churches stands for all the churches 
over all the time in these last days and up until Christ comes back. And all the triumphs, all the failures, all the struggles of these church are a kind of miniature catalog of all the struggles we will ever face as a church. And as we go through this particular book, they are not churches that, and some see it as, each church represents a certain age in church history. I don't understand that view, and I, don't, well, I understand it, but I don't accept it. I think that, these, that the word seven in these churches refers to all of church ages. And so I am of the mind that the issues that Jesus raises in each of these seven churches are the main issues that every church will face ever in the last days. And according to God's point of view, as we will see, not all the churches are healthy. It's like they've come into the doctor's office of, of Christ, and as he examines them, he finds some things that they're doing well, but he also finds some things that they're not doing so well. And that, that the context and the times change, but the issues remain the same. And as a church, I think as Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church, we today would do well to listen to this. Because today, this particular generation, we might be wrestling with the issues that face Sardis. But maybe in the next 20 years, when I'm dead and gone, some of you will be in leadership at the church and you'll think, what's going wrong with our church? Or what's going right with our church? And you might go to the book of Ephesus and say, oh, this is what is happening right now. This is how we ought to understand our church. And so these represent every issue that we will ever face as a church. And I think that what we need is people that attend a church and as leaders, is we need Christ-like discernment. We need to be illumined by the Holy Spirit as we read these examples. And in the light of these examples, evaluate our church and say, what is Christ saying about us today? So if the letters to the seven churches are universal letters, then the vision of Christ at the first part of Revelation is also universal. And what it's saying is that Christ is the focus of the church. Christ is the head of the church. Christ is the leader of the church. It's to Christ that we go for answers. It's to Christ that we go for solutions to the problem that we're facing. Not to the local Christian bookstore for every book that's written under sun about how to evaluate your church and is your church healthy or unhealthy. If we want to evaluate our church, we evaluate it through the grid of the seven churches that we have here in Revelation. I love this because Christ shows his care for the church. And as we go through it, I'll point out some of these things. But in every one of these churches, there's a comment that Christ says, I know where you live. I know what you're suffering. I know what's going on in your community. It's not that Christ is oblivious to the things that we face as a church. He has an intimate knowledge of the things that we are facing. And each message contains insight from Christ into, into certain things about the, uh, the church and the city. It might be the, the specific idols that are taking place in the, in the city. It might be to the, to the sexual immorality that is rampant in a particular city. It might be to what's going on within the church. But in each one of these instances, Christ says, I know what you're going through. I know what you're facing as a church. And in almost every one, he gives a con. con commendation, and in almost everyone, he gives a warning. He says, this is what you're doing good. Like the doctor might tell you, you know, your cholesterol is good, Paul, but I have this against you. Your blood pressure is off the chart. And if you want to live to be 80, you got to get your blood pressure under control. Well, this is kind of what Christ does. He says, you know, that this is going really good, and this is going good, but if you don't get a handle on this, I might remove your lampstand. And so Christ is the center of the church. The seven churches are churches in Asia. 
And in one particular province of Asia, does anyone know what that flag, uh, what, what country that flag is for? Right here? Turkey, you're right. It's the flag of Turkey. And one of the reasons we have the flag of Turkey up is because this month, um, Josh and Jamie Rivers are the missionaries of the month. Some of you know Josh and Jamie. Uh, Josh and Jamie are a young couple who we sent out of here about a year ago, and they're in Turkey serving the Lord. And they're actually going to be home in, in not a very, maybe a week or two, and they're going to be here for about three or four weeks. But they're in Turkey. And the letters to the seven churches are written to a geographic area that roughly encompasses modern Turkey today. And so you can actually go on a map and you can, you can point out where these seven churches are on the map. And, and they're churches that are listed in a clockwise, no, clockwise, yeah, clockwise, clockwise. And, and, and they're in order so that if you were to post a letter, the mailman would go to the order of the churches that they're listed here. They would just follow around. They go in clockwise order. So there is a symmetry or there is an order to these churches. And what you will find as we go through these is that some of the churches have trouble within. If you've been in a church long enough, you know that sometimes uh, there are troubles within a church. It, it might be um, a, a book that everyone's reading and it's, it's not a good book. It's full of error and doctrine that's not correct. Sometimes you can get within a church sexual immorality that seems to be accepted and seems to grab a hold of a church. And there's stuff that happens within a church. And so we need to be alert at what can go on inside of a church. But there's also a whole bunch of stuff that bears on us from outside of the church. And we're even finding this today with the ruling that was passed down in the States um, just a couple of weeks ago that opened the door to um, to 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 uh, same-sex unions and marriages, and that's going to bring a great pressure to bear on the churches to adjust their view of marriage or to compromise, or it will put pressure on them uh, to face persecution because they won't accept the ruling of the courts. And so we can have trouble from without. Some of these churches here were in the context of um, of one of these Roman leaders, um, uh, Domitian, and Domitian was a brutal man. And he would slaughter Christians just because he could slaughter Christians. And so the church was facing this intense persecution from outside of it. And so we have trouble from within the church and we have trouble from outside of the church. He starts off and he, he says that there are stars and lampstands. And we're gonna, there's lots of symbolism uh, in this book. And, and I hope we can understand a little bit the stars. It says Jesus holds in his hand seven stars. And you'll find that in a couple places. You find it in the, in the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, um, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. That's kind of bizarre, eh? He holds seven stars in his right hand. The right hand, for most people in our culture, although left-handedness is much more accepted now, there is a day and age, you know, where to be left-handed was not a good thing. And that even um, in, in my wife's household... Um, and um, she's young, but when the children were born, if one of them were to write with their left hand, the mom would take a towel and just tie it behind the back. So they would write with their right hand um, because right-handedness was just seen to be the right way to be. But right-handed is a symbol of strength. It's a symbol of power. It's a symbol of authority. And so in his hand are the seven stars. And you say, well, what are these seven stars? And you look at the end of verse 20 there, and it says, and, and as for the seven stars you saw on the right hand, um, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. You go, what? The angels of the seven churches? That's kind of bizarre. 
Like there's angels that are assigned to every church. And I, I wrestle with this. I, I think it could be. I think there's at least a couple ways that we can understand it. One is that there are literally angels that God assigns to each church that, that care for it, that protect it, that are, that are over the church. There's a lot of verses in Scripture that are really kind of interesting ones to understand. There's one place in Corinthians where it says that women are to have their heads covered for the sake of angels. And you think, well, that's, that's a bizarre statement. But there's a sense in which angels are present as we gather, and there's a way that we can offend them. And there's another place where, where Paul says that, didn't you know that we will judge the angels? Have you ever considered that? That, that the, in this whole spiritual realm and all these angels, that believers will judge the angels? You go to the book of Daniel, and you read the book of Daniel, and you'll find that there seems to be a reference to angels over some geographic places in the world. And when you think about the word angel, in the whole book of Revelation, it only ever refers to created angelic beings. And so there's a sense in which there is an angel, even over Parksville Fellowship Baptist Church. That could be what John is saying. Or some would argue that the word angel actually can mean messenger, and so it's referring to the leadership of the church or the pastor of the church, which also makes some sense. I'm still sort of on the fence of, of which one I understand. But nonetheless... The encouragement is, is that God holds the leadership of the church in his hand. That for me is encouraging. That no matter what goes on in a church, God is in control over what's going on in the church. And then he says that not only are there these um, seven uh, stars that he holds in his hand, which is a way of saying God holds the whole church, the universal church in his hand. But he also says that he walks among the lampstands. There's one way of saying that the church is to be a light set on a hill. That we are not to hide the light of the gospel. We're not to be ashamed of Jesus Christ. That we are to shine our light as the lights lit the way into the tabernacle and lit the way into the temple. So we are the light in Parksville. Every gospel-believing, Bible-believing church is a light in Parksville for the gospel of Christ. And as he walks through these churches, he makes comments. He, he gives some affirmations. And I know that you're doing this, and I know that you're doing that. He gives them correction. He says, but you need to do this. You need to look after that. And he gives a word of promise where he says that if you do this, then this is what you will receive. We come to Ephesus then. And we read of Ephesus here that he starts out and he says, I know your, or he, first of all, he says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's really God's way of saying, and Jesus' way of saying that he holds and he patrols in the church. I like that. Um, it doesn't worry me. It doesn't scare me. It actually gives me some comfort to know that even tonight, I believe there's a sense in which Christ is walking amongst us, where Christ is present in our midst, where Christ is aware of what's going on here. And there's the true sense also that Christ holds us in his hand. And so he holds and he patrols the church. Secondly, what does he know? Well, he says of the church here, he says in verse, in verse 2, I know your works, your toil, your pace and endurance. Uh, maybe stop there for a moment. Uh, he's aware of the fact that, that they are working hard for him. There are lots of good stuff. And, 
And lots of churches do a lot of good stuff. I mean, we do Bethlehem Walk. We do banquets for people. We do funerals for people. Uh, there is so much work in our church that is organized and so much that I know nothing about of the church is during the week it goes out in the community and people visit the sick and people go to the hospital and people help people move. People bake meals for people that are sick. I mean, there is a, there is a massive amount of work that happens even from this church on any given day of the week. And so Jesus says, I know your good works. He says, I know your toil. That is hard work, that word toil. It doesn't mean that, that you know, I just, you know, you, you kind of, you know, you, you, you just kind of do a little bit and then you take a break. It says, this is like sweat equity. He says, you're working hard. And I can see that. And he says, I also know that you have patient endurance. That's pretty cool. Because I think what that's saying is that Jesus sees that these people are suffering and maybe the church as a whole is under pressure. But rather than getting impatient, rather than getting ticked off, rather than, than pushing back, he says, you guys are in the face of opposition. You're continuing a witness of Christ. You've not yielded to the temptation to confirm. You've stood firm. And then he says, you're bearing up for my name's sake. I like that. He says, you're doing okay. You know, you're, you're standing good. You're, you're, you're continuing to proclaim my name. You're not growing weary, as, as it would say in another place. And so he says, these are the good things that I see about you. I know this about you. And then he makes a couple commendations. And these are commendations, and we won't look at them just tonight because it's hot and because we don't want to be here all night, but you can go to Acts chapter 20, and you can go to Ephesians chapter 5, and you can read there how um, Paul uh, warns the church that when he goes, wolves are going to come in amongst them. Now, that's not real wolves. It's not like the show Zoo, where all the animals are going nuts. Um, but he's talking about people that are, 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 are wolf-like in their behavior. They just want to destroy and devour people who follow Christ. And he says, when I'm gone, that kind of stuff is going to happen. And then in Ephesians, he talks about God's gifts to the church, how, how they are given to us so that we might be stable and firm and not blown about by every wind and doctrine. And so he says, they've taken that seriously. He says, you cannot bear with those who are evil. There's a great lesson for us personally and for us as a church. What do we tolerate? Like, like do we put up with evil? Do we put up with, with, with teaching that is wrong uh, just so that we can be popular or that, that we don't want to offend people? Do we, do we, just, do we deal with it or, or do we say, no, you know, I just can't go there. I can't believe that. No, I don't want to read that book. No, you shouldn't read that book. You can't tolerate evil. And then he says, and you hate the Nicolaitans. We don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans, We'll look at them in a couple of weeks when we look at Pergamum. But the Nicolaitans, it seems, were a group of people that promoted sexual immorality in the church. They basically said there's no boundaries. It doesn't matter if you, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you have sexual relations before you're married. It doesn't matter if you have sexual relations while you're married. It doesn't matter if you have sexual relations with same-sex people. There's no boundaries anymore. And there was, there was groups of people that just promoted this stuff within the church. And Paul says, you hate them. Or, or Jesus says, I, I see that you hate that teaching. And I hate it too. And so he commends them for what they hate. But then he has this criticism. And this is kind of the heart of what he's saying here. It's, a, it's a, an amazing letter. He says that you're doing all these things well. You're detecting false doctrine. You're not dealing with error. You, you got hard work. You're, you're patiently enduring. You're toiling. He says, but I have this against you. 
He says this, hey, there, there, you, you have hearts that don't beat in tune with the love of God. Their actions shout now amongst the people they live with and work with, I just don't love you anymore. I just don't love you anymore. If, if Jesus, um, what's he referring to here? You've abandoned your first love. It's, I think it's at least one of two things. They no longer love God like they used to love God. And they no longer love, love each other like they used to love each other. I think they go hand in hand. And there's a way that that can happen. Some of you maybe have experienced that. Maybe as a church we've experienced that from time to time. It's just a drift that takes place. We get, we get frustrated with God. We get angry with God. He doesn't answer our prayers or he doesn't, he doesn't respond the way that we do or we work so hard for him. We don't think we get any benefit from him and we just have this work mentality and we lose the feelings, we lose the relationship we have with him and we start to pull away from God. Or we start to pull away from the people of God. We're just, we're just tired of them. We just, we're just tired of the energy they take. We're just tired of the relationships that we have. And we begin to pull away from the people of God. I think Jesus might be referring to that here. That we are called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul, our, and our strength. So this is a serious criticism Jesus is saying here. He says, something has gone on in your heart towards God. Somehow legalism has come in. And if you know what legalism is, legalism is a commitment to rules and regulations as a basis of relationship. And if you're bound in that, you know that if you walk that road too long, you enter into formalism, which is, is, is you just have this standard of faith that as long as I do this, 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 and this, I'm okay. And if I do that, that, and that, I'm not okay. But there's no relationship really with a person anymore. There's no relationship with a person in authority. You just have to do the right thing. And if you enter into a, a legalistic relationship with God, it won't be long before you will not like God anymore. And so Jesus is saying, I think, to this church, you guys have just, you, you've lost your love for God. You've lost your love for people. Uh, there's this um, great chapter in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's called the love chapter. And we read the love chapter at weddings and, and stuff, and we, we really take it out of context. If you've ever, I had one, one person call this the, the peanut butter and jelly, um, um, uh, chapter 12, 13, and 14 is like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Chapter 12 and chapter 14 are the bread, and chapter 13 is the peanut butter and jelly. And if you know 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 13, and 14, there's trouble in the church. They're fighting over who's got the best gift. Well, I speak in tongues. I'm better than you. Well, I prophesy. I'm better than you. Well, I prayed and people got healed. I'm better than you. And there's this, there's this, this tension that's happening in the church. And then in chapter 14, you find the same thing going on. There's confusion. And people are popping up with a prophecy and they're popping up with this. And there's all this confusion in the church. What's right in the middle of that? 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'll just read part of it. Um, tonight. You've, you've heard it, but it's, it's helpful to hear it again. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not love, I am nothing. 
And if I give, give away all that I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. I wonder if that's what's beginning to happen in this church in Ephesus. They've got great wisdom. They've got great understanding. They're sacrificing. They're giving away, but they have lost the heart of love. It says love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when we perfectly come, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I came a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, and then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now abide faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I think that's what they needed to be reminded of in the church in Ephesus. And I think that's sometimes what we need to hear as a church. We can just power ahead with fighting this doctrine here and fighting that doctrine there. We can power ahead working at Bethlehem Mohawk. We can power ahead working as a witness in the community in our school or in our neighborhood. But if we have love, we are nothing. And this is what Jesus says here. He says, it seems that you have lost love or not you have he says you have abandoned your first love it's very possible to be so concerned about rightness and doctrine and truth that people become secondary concerns i remember as a pastor being rebuked by an individual who i very much love and who is a dear friend of mine today but he said to me in, in no uncertain terms he said paul back off because as I was addressing theology, and I love theology, and I love truth, and it matters to me that we're correct, but as I was addressing it, my tone of voice, my lack of patience, my lack of kindness, my unwillingness to hear him out, my unwillingness to think that maybe he had some truth, just got in the way, and he just said, back off. I wasn't exhibiting love in the relationship. And so then we have what Jesus commands here. He says, you know, this is what you've done well. This is what you're in trouble of. You're in danger of abandoning your first love. And he says, remember, repent, and do. Jesus uses a spatial metaphor. He says, remember how far you have fallen. So there's a reference point for them. I don't know what that reference point is, but there's a reference point somewhere in their past that Jesus says, listen, you need to go back and think about that reference point. That's where you need to get back to. Remember what you used to be like. I, I think of this sometimes in marriage, and, and I I wasn't going to go here, but, but marriage, I think, sometimes is a, is a good analogy or illustration of this. When you start dating and then you, uh, and initially then, and you get married, there is just this, 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 this love cloud. And it's a neat cloud. And it's a wonderful thing. But even in the dating relationship, you do all kinds of things, um, both of you. Do all kinds of things in the relationship, the way you do your hair, the way you wear your perfume, the, the things that you eat and the things that you don't eat. My wife wouldn't eat white spot burgers when we were dating. Um, I would open her door all the time when we would go places. There was just lots of stuff that you did. And then in the first couple years of marriage, although Kathy would say the first year of our marriage was the toughest year, but in the first couple years of marriage, you're just, you're, you're just happy with each other. You're floating around. But as time comes, you have kids and you, and you get working and you start forgetting about one another. And after a while, your love 
starts to wane and fade. And I have had people in my office say, you know what, I just don't love my spouse anymore. I just don't love them anymore. I've lost all the feelings towards them. I'm walking out. And I think that's something about what Jesus is saying here. And, and what I've said to spouses and those kind of things, I said, you married them, didn't you? There was some point in your life and when you had a love relationship with them where you did things that demonstrated your love, where you acted in a way that was loving. Well, that's what Jesus said. He says, remember where you've fallen. As a, as a couple, maybe you've been married for 20 years or 30 years. Remember what you were like when you first fell in love. And then repent of how far you've fallen and the self-talk that you have and the things that you say about your spouse. And now do the things that you first did and rekindle that love. And that's what Jesus says about the church and about you and I. Remember, it's not God that has moved away from us. It's us that have moved away from God. And so he says, Jesus says to them, listen, it's not a lost cause, but you're, on, you're in trouble. And so remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent of the sin that you have embraced, the sin of leaving your first love, the sin of thinking badly about your love, the thing of ignoring your love, and begin to do the things again that created that love in the first place. There's a strong warning here. He says, if you don't do that, I am going to remove your lampstand. There are a lot of churches that are empty now. There are a lot of churches that have been bulldozed. There are a lot of churches that are now Buddhist temples for any number of reasons, but this could be some of the reasons. And in fact, there was a great illustration of this uh, Ephesus. Ephesus was on a, on a river, and the river kept silting up, and so the, uh, the, the city had to keep moving, and eventually it just couldn't move anymore. And the church in Ephesus, uh, it really died off. And so some wonder if this actually, the warning actually came true for the church in Ephesus, that God just removed his lampstand from among them. But he says, if you do remember, and if you do repent, and if you do go back to doing the things that you first did, then to him who overcomes this beautiful phrase, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You know what the tree of life is, don't you? The tree of life was in the middle of the Garden of Eden. And the tree of life um, uh, was, the, uh, was a tree that if one were to eat of it, one would have everlasting life. And you remember when Adam and Eve sinned, God blocked the way back to the tree of life. But that tree of life, it seems to pop up along the way in the Bible, and we find it all the way then at the end of the book of Revelation in the new heaven and the new earth in the garden of God. And what he's saying is that I will, to him who overcomes, to him who deals with this issue, to the church that, that recovers, I will grant to them eternal you can eat of the tree of life. You will have life everlasting. The church at Ephesus, I think, models for us a spiritual problem, which I referred to in Corinthians. It says, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith as to remove all mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. This text is a great text for us to think about corporately as a church. And it just maybe if you're in a small group together or if you go out for coffee with a bunch of people together this week, just talk about this and say, how's our love? What's our love number? You know, one to ten as a church. You know, do we express love for God? Do we express love for one another well? 
but also to ask yourself, how are you doing here? Uh, it's a warning that is for the church, and it's warning for, for warning for us as individuals. And Jesus' challenge to the Ephesian church is the same as his challenge to us, that we have to retain our commitment to God's word and truth, and at the same time have it balanced with love. Love for other people and love for God. It's a huge challenge before us. And as Christ says, let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. May God give us good ears tonight. Father, thank you for our time in your word tonight. Thank you for our time to consider this um, first message to the church in Ephesus. And uh, I pray that even in the midst of the heat of the night and distracted minds, that uh, we will think about one or two things from this text. That it will help us this week as we think about personally our relationship with you and with each other in this church. And then also corporately our relationship as a church together. How are we doing? and our love for you. 